Chapter 16 of The Dog Crusoe and His Master. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Allison Hester of Athens, Georgia. The Dog Crusoe and His Master by R. M. Ballantyne. Chapter 16 Dick Becomes a Horse Tamer. Resumes His Journey. Charlie's Doings. Misfortunes which lead to, but do not terminate in, the Rocky Mountains, a grizzly bear. There is a proverb or saying, or at least somebody or book has told us, that some Irishman once said, Be easy if ye can't be easy, be easy as ye can. Now, we count that as good advice, and strongly recommend it to all and sundry. Had we been at the side of Dick Varley on the night after his taming of the wild horse, we would have strongly urged that advice upon him. Whether he would have listened or not is quite another question. We rather think not. Reader, if you wish to know why, go and do what he did. And if you feel no curious sensations about the region of the loins after it, we will tell you why Dick Varley wouldn't have listened to that advice. Can a man feel as if his joints were wrenched out of their sockets and listen to advice? be that advice good or bad? Can he feel as though these joints were trying to reset and re-dislocate themselves perpetually and listen to advice? Can he feel as if he were sitting down on red-hot iron when he's not sitting down at all and listen to advice? Can he... But no! Why pursue the subject? Poor Dick spent that night in misery and the greater part of the following day in sleep to make up for it. When he got up to breakfast in the afternoon, he felt much better, but shaky. Now, pup, he said, stretching himself, we'll go see our horse. Ours, pup, yours and mine. Didn't you help catch him, eh, pup? Crusoe acknowledged the fact with a wag and a playful bow, wow, 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 wow and followed his master to the place where the horse had been picketed. It was standing there quite quiet, but looking a little timid. Dick went boldly up to it and patted its head and stroked its nose, for nothing is so likely to alarm either a tame or a wild horse as any appearance of timidity or hesitation on the part of those who approach him. After treating it thus for a short time, he stroked down its neck and then its shoulders, the horse eyeing him all the time nervously. Gradually, he stroked its back and limbs gently and walked quietly round and round it once or twice, sometimes approaching and sometimes going away, but never either hesitating or doing anything abruptly. This done, he went down to the stream and filled his cap with water and carried it to the horse, which snuffed suspiciously and backed a little. So he laid the cap down and went up and patted him again. Presently, he took up the cap and carried it to his nose. The poor creature was almost choking with thirst, so that the moment he understood what was in the cap, he buried his lips in it and sucked it up. This was a great point gained. He had accepted a benefit at the hands of his new master. He had become a debtor to man, and no doubt he felt the obligation. Dick filled the cap, and the horse emptied it again, and again, and again, until its burning thirst was slacked. Then Dick went up to his shoulder, patted him, undid the line that fastened him, and vaulted lightly on his back. We say lightly, for it was so, 
but it wasn't easily as dick could have told you however he was determined not to forego the training of his steed on account of what he would have called a little bit pain at this unexpected act the horse plunged and reared a good deal and seemed inclined to go through the performance of the day before over and over again but dick patted and stroked him into quiescence and having done so urged him into a gallop over the plains causing the dog to gambol around in order that he might get accustomed to him this tried his nerves a great deal and no wonder for if he took crusoe for a wolf which no doubt he did he must have thought him a very giant of the pack by degrees they broke into a furious gallop and after breathing him well dick returned and tied him to the tree then he rubbed him down again and gave him another drink this time the horse smelt his new master all over and dick felt that he had conquered him by kindness no doubt the tremendous run of the day before could scarcely be called kindness but without this subduing run he never could have brought the offices of kindness to bear on so wild a steed during all these operations crusoe sat looking on with demure sagacity drinking in wisdom and taking notes we know not whether any notes made by the canine race have ever been given to the world but certain are we that if the notes and observations made by crusoe on that journey were published they would to say the least surprise us next day dick gave the wild horse his second lesson and his name he called him charlie after a much-loved companion in the mustang valley and long and heartily did dick varley laugh as he told the horse his future designation in the presence of crusoe for it struck him as somewhat ludicrous that a mustang which two days ago pawed the earth in all the pride of independent freedom should suddenly come down so low as to carry a hunter on his back and be named charlie the next piece of instruction began by Crusoe being led up under Charlie's nose, while Dick patted the dog with his right hand, he patted the horse with his left. It backed a good deal at first and snorted, but Crusoe walked slowly and quietly in front of him several times, each time coming nearer, until, again, he stood under his nose. Then the horse smelt him nervously and gave a sigh of relief when he found that Crusoe paid no attention to him whatever dick then ordered the dog to lie down at charlie's feet and went to the camp to fetch his rifle and buffalo robe and pack of meat these and all the other things belonging to him were presented for inspection one by one to the horse who arched his neck and put forward his ears and eyed them at first but smelt them all over and seemed to feel more easy in his mind next the buffalo robe was rubbed over his nose then over his eyes and head then down his neck and shoulder and lastly was placed on his back then it was taken off and flung on after that it was strapped on and the various little items of the camp were attached to it this done dick took up his rifle and let him smell it then he put his hand on charlie's shoulder vaulted onto his back and rode away charlie's education was completed and now our hero's journey began again in earnest and with some prospect of its speedy termination in the course of training through which dick put his wild horse he had been at much greater pains and had taken far longer time than is usually the case among indians who will catch and break and ride a wild horse into camp in less than three hours but dick wanted to do the thing well which the indians are not careful to do besides it must be borne in remembrance that this was his first attempt 
and that his horse was one of the best and most high-spirited, while those caught by the Indians, as we have said, are generally the poorest of a drove. Dick now followed the trail of his lost companions at a rapid pace, yet not so rapidly as he might have done, being averse to exhausting his good dog and his new companion. Each night he encamped under the shade of a tree or bush, when he could find one, or in the open prairie, when there were none, and, picketing his horse to a short stake or pen which he carried with him for purpose, lit his fire, had supper, and lay down to rest. In a few days, Charlie became so tame and accustomed to his master's voice that he seemed quite reconciled to his new life. There can be no doubt whatever that he had a great dislike to solitude, for on one occasion, when Dick and Crusoe went off a mile or so from the camp where Charlie was tied and disappeared from his view, he was heard to neigh so loudly that Dick ran back thinking the wolves must have attacked him. He was all right, however, and exhibited evident tokens of satisfaction when they returned. On another occasion, his fear of being left alone was more clearly demonstrated. Dick had been unable to find wood or water that day, so he was obliged to encamp upon the open plain. The want of water was not seriously felt, however, for he had prepared a bladder in which he always carried enough to give him one pannikin of hot syrup and leave a mouthful for Crusoe and Charlie. Dried buffalo dung formed a substitute for fuel. Spreading his buffalo rope, he lit his fire, put on his pannikin to boil, and stuck up a piece of meat to roast, to the great delight of Crusoe, who sat looking on with much interest. Suddenly, Charlie, who was picketed a few hundred yards off in a grassy spot, broke his halter close by the headpiece, and with a snort of delight, bounded away, prancing and kicking up his heels. Dick heaved a deep sigh, for he felt sure that his horse was gone. However, in a little, Charlie stopped and raised his nose high in the air as if to look for his old equine companions. But they were gone. No answering nay replied to his, and he felt, probably for the first time, that he was really alone in the world. Having no power of smell, whereby he might have traced them out as a dog would have done, he looked in a bewildered and excited state all round the horizon. Then his eye fell on Dick and Crusoe sitting by their little fire. Charlie looked hard at them, and then again at the horizon, and then, coming to the conclusion, no doubt, that the matter was quite beyond his comprehension, he quietly took to feeding. Dick availed himself of the chance and tried to catch him, but he spent an hour with Crusoe in the vain attempt, and at last they gave it up in disgust and returned to the fire, where they finished their supper and went to bed. Next morning, they saw Charlie feeding close at hand, so they took breakfast and tried to catch him again. But it was of no use. He was evidently coquetting with them, and dodged about and defied their utmost efforts, for there was only a few inches of line hanging to his head. At last, it occurred to Dick that he would try the experiment of forsaking him. So he packed up his things, rolled up the buffalo robe, threw it and the rifle on his shoulder, and walked deliberately away. "'Come along, Crusoe,' he called after walking a few paces. But Crusoe stood by the fire with his head up and an expression on his face that said, "'Hello, man, what's wrong? You forgot Charlie. Hold on, are you mad?' "'Come here, Crusoe,' cried his master in a decided tone. Crusoe obeyed at once. Whatever mistake there might be, 
There was evidently none in that command. So he lowered his head and tail humbly and trotted on with his master, but he perpetually turned his head as he went, first on this side and then on that, to look and wonder at Charlie. When they were far away on the plain, Charlie suddenly became aware that something was wrong. He trotted to the brow of a slope with his head and tail very high up indeed, and looked after them, and then he looked at the fire and neighed. Then he trotted quickly up to it, and seeing that everything was gone, he began to neigh violently, and at last started off at full speed, and overtook his friends, passing within a few feet of them, and wheeling round a few yards off, stood trembling like an aspen leaf. Dick called him by his name and advanced, while Charlie met him halfway and allowed himself to be saddled, bridled, and mounted forthwith. After this, Dick had no further trouble with his wild horse. At his next camping place, which was in the midst of a cluster of bushes close beside a creek, Dick came unexpectedly upon a little wooden cross which marked the head of a grave. There was no inscription on it, but the Christian symbol told that it was a grave of a white man. It is impossible to describe the rush of mingled feelings that filled the soul of the young hunter as he leaned on the muzzle of his rifle and looked at this solitary resting place of one who, doubtless like himself, had been a roving hunter. Had he been young or old when he fell? Had he a mother in the distant settlement who watched and longed and waited for the sun that was never more to gladden her eyes? Had he been murdered? Or had he died there and been buried by his sorrowing comrades? These and a thousand questions passed rapidly through his mind as he gazed at the little cross. Suddenly he started. Could it be the grave of Joe or Henry? For an instant the idea sent a chill to his heart, but it passed quickly, for a second glance showed that the grave was old and that the wooden cross had stood over it for years. Dick turned away with a saddened heart, and that night, as he pored over the pages of his Bible, his mind was filled with many thoughts about eternity and the world to come. He, too, must come to the grave one day and quit the beautiful prairies and his loved rifle. It was a sad thought, but while he meditated, he thought upon his mother. After all, he murmured, there must be happiness without the rifle and youth and health in the prairie. My mother's happy, yet she don't shoot or ride like wildfire over the plains. Then that word which had been sent so sweetly to him through her hand came up again to his mind. My son, give me thine heart. And as he read God's book, he met with the word. Delight thyself in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. The desires of thine heart? Dick repeated this and pondered it till he fell asleep. A misfortune soon after this befell Dick Varley, which well nigh caused him to give way to despair. For some time past, he had been approaching the eastern slopes of the Rocky Mountains, those jagged, mighty hills which run through the whole continent from north to south in a continuous chain and form, as it were, the backbone of America. One morning, as he threw the buffalo robe off his shoulders and sat up, he was horrified to find the whole earth covered with a mantle of snow. We say he was horrified, for this rendered it absolutely impossible any further to trace his companions either by sight or scent. For some time he sat musing bitterly on his sad fate, while his dog came and laid his head sympathizingly on his arm. 
Ah, pup, he said, I know you'd help me if you could, but it's all up now. There's no chance of finding them. None. To this, Crusoe replied by a low whine. He knew full well that something distressed his master, but he hadn't yet ascertained what it was. As something had to be done, Dick put the buffalo robe on his steed, and, mounting, said, as he was in the habit of doing each morning, "'Lead on, pup.' Crusoe put his nose to the ground and ran forward a few paces. Then he returned and ran about snuffing and scraping up the snow. At last he looked up and uttered a low, melancholy howl. "'Ah, oh, I knowed it,' said Dick, pushing forward. "'Come on, pup. You'll have to follow now. Anyway, we must go on.' The snow that had fallen was not deep enough to offer the slightest obstruction to their advance. It was, indeed, only one of those occasional showers common to that part of the country in late autumn, which season had now crept upon Dick almost before he was aware of it, and he fully expected that it would melt away in a few days. In this hope, he kept steadily advancing until he found himself in the midst of those rocky fastnesses which divided the waters that flow into the Atlantic from those that flow into the Pacific Ocean. Still, the slight crust of snow lay on the ground, and he had no means of knowing whether he was going in the right direction or not. Game was abundant, and there was no lack of wood now, so that his night bivouac was not so cold or dreary as might have been expected. Traveling, however, had become difficult, and even dangerous, owing to the rugged nature of the ground over which he proceeded. The scenery had completely changed in its character. Dick no longer coursed over the free open plains, but he passed through beautiful valleys filled with luxuriant trees and hemmed in by stupendous mountains, whose rugged sides rose upward until the snow-clad peaks pierced the clouds. There was something awful in these dark solitudes, quite overwhelming to a youth of Dick's temperament. His heart began to sink lower and lower every day, and the utter impossibility of making up his mind what to do became at length agonizing. To have turned and gone back the hundreds of miles over which he had traveled would have caused him some anxiety under any circumstances, but to do so while Joe and Henry were either wandering about there or in the power of the savages was, he felt, out of the question. Yet, in which way should he go? Whatever course he took might lead him further and further away from them. In this dilemma, he came to the determination of remaining where he was, at least until the snow should leave the ground. He felt great relief, even when this hopeless course was decided upon, and set about making himself an encampment with some degree of cheerfulness. When he had completed this task, he took his rifle, and, leaving Charlie picketed in the center of a dell, where the long, rich grass rose high above the snow, went off to hunt. On turning a rocky point, his heart suddenly bounded into his throat, for there, not thirty yards distant, stood a huge grizzly bear. Yes, there he was at last, the monster to meet which the young hunter had so often longed, the terrible size and fierceness of which he had heard so often spoken about by the old hunters. There it stood at last, but little did Dick Varley think that the first time he should meet with this foe should be when he was alone in the dark recesses of the Rocky Mountains, and with none to secure him in the event of a battle going against him. Yes, there was one. The faithful Crusoe stood by his side, with his hair bristling, all his formidable teeth exposed, and his eyes glaring in their sockets. 
Alas, for poor Crusoe, had he gone into that combat alone, one stroke of that monster's paw would have hurled him dead upon the ground. End of chapter 16